I'm so excited about our guest today. I just finished a listening tour of the Missing Link for Fresh SLP's membership site, and that is where I invited some people to come be guests of the membership site and give me some feedback on what they liked and what they didn't like. And I found that the students who came and said, oh gosh, I'd love to do this, um, are the students that were just so top-notch and looking to just be the best SLPs they could be. And one of the students came from a college that I, she just was so impressive and I said oh what, what's your college and she told me and I happen to have some connections and so I reached out to one of the professors so we have Louise Keegan on today from Moravian University and I'm excited to have this conversation with her. Welcome to the Missing Link for SLPs podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today's episode is part of the SLP Spotlight series where I talk with SLPs in a variety of SLP positions and settings, doing things that we knew SLPs did, but also working in areas that we've never thought or heard of SLPs working in. It is amazing the opportunities these SLPs have taken and where their careers have gone. This is storytelling time. Welcome to this episode of the Missing Link for SLPs podcast. I have Louise Keegan with us. She is an associate professor at Moravian University, and I'm excited to have you here, Louise. I'm so excited to be here, so thank you for inviting me. I should call you Dr. Keegan because you are a PhD faculty. Louise is good, but thank you. (laughs) I am, yeah, and I should, I guess, I should correct you. We are in the process of changing to Moravian University, but right now our official title is Moravian College, but we hope by this summer, our title will transition and we'll be called Moravian University. Congratulations. And we're here in Pennsylvania, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which is about an hour and a half outside of New York um, and north of Philadelphia, about the same distance between Philadelphia and New York City. All right. So one of the east eastern uh, I, you and I are connecting on a couple of different ways. I met one of your students who I was so incredibly impressed with. She was just head and shoulders above some of the other students that I have talked with. And then I happened to mention um, your college to a colleague of mine. And she's like, oh, well, I, I know one of the professors there. So I reached out to you and I really wanted to invite you on today. There are so many speech pathologists who, um, not tons, but there are some very focused speech pathologists who want to go on and get their PhDs. So I wanted uh, you to share a little bit of your story with us on why you became a speech pathologist and and, uh, went the PhD route and a little bit about what makes your program so special. Sure. I'm I'm happy to share um, my background information, which is a little bit different to other people's backgrounds. Um, I I'm from Ireland. I grew up in County Limerick and I um, basically did my my education all in Ireland. So the education system is a little bit different there. I went through high school and we don't typically have a, a gen ed program or required courses at the college level. We specialize immediately. So once you enter college, you enter with your 
degree track and you go that route. So if you're medicine, you do medicine. If you're pharmacy, you do pharmacy. If you're accounting, you do accounting. And if you're speech language pathology, that's what you do for the four years. Um, And so I chose speech language therapy coming out of high school at at 18 years old, just because I um, really liked the courses on the curriculum. Um, Back then it had the... um, it was the book you got, the co- the college book that was the catalog. And I went through and speech language pathology or speech language therapy, as it's called in Ireland, stood out to me because it had a mix of everything. It's had some anatomy and physiology. It had some linguistics and language science. It had some psychology coursework as part of it. And so that was all really fascinating to me, the mix of different kinds of disciplines. And so that's really why I chose it. I wasn't really thinking career-wise. I was more thinking what would be fun to study in college. And I um, I went to UCC, which is University College Cork, to pursue my degree in speech-language pathology. And so because you specialize in speech-language therapy um, the whole time, you end up meeting the, require- the equivalency to the requirements of a master's degree in the US. And so when I graduated, I had my clinical hours behind me. I was certified to work clinically. Um, After graduation, I got a job in a school working. It was a small school in County Tipperary. And it was, um, it had a high proportion of individuals with autism. And so I ended up working in that school supporting these students And I had already been looking into PhD programs. I had been interested in it from the beginning. Um, Not from the beginning, but I I liked being a student. And so that's my major reason for being interested in PhD programs. But this really solidified, working in that school really solidified the fact that I wanted to go back and do more learning. I really didn't feel like I was helping these students enough. And so that's when I, I guess, became most intentional about applying to and pursuing the PhD program route. And so I applied to a number in England and my department chair from my, um, from University College Cork, um, Dr. Paul Fletcher, he had a friend who was chair of this PhD program in Louisiana. Um, And it was Louisiana, it was very far afield, but I said, hey, he's a friend there. I'll apply. The The chair was from Wales and New Ireland and lived in Ireland. And so I felt like it's not that far afield. Um, and I applied. And the, the thing that drew me to Louisiana was really the fact that it was covered. I got a, a tuition covered position. I was able to get an assistantship where I was able to earn a little bit money of money for working in the program. And I figured I've got nothing to lose. I may as well try it. If I don't like it, I can come home. I remember, I remember landing in Louisiana um, and getting off the plane thinking, this is not going to last. I'm not even going to last a week because I can't breathe. There's no air here. I arrived in the middle of August with the humidity oh. and the, the heat. Very different from, very different from Ireland. Right. But it did. I stayed for four years and I had a, I had a really wonderful learning experience. Excellent. And you're carrying that on into your program. Yeah, well, that's the the goal. I guess to backtrack a little bit, I 
my PhD program looked like, because you had asked um, about students that might be interested in doing PhD programs, the PhD program in Louisiana, and I know different programs are set up somewhat differently. It looked like um, two years of coursework, which I was really excited about because I love learning and I really enjoyed the coursework component. And then, and then two years of more primarily research and working on the dissertation. Um, there I became... Not that I became more interested in adults. I was always interested in working with adults. I just didn't know if I was very good at it. <laughs> so I became more intentional about working with adults and um, worked with some individuals in my research who had had traumatic brain injuries. Um, and that was that was the basis of my, my dissertation to look at how they communicated their identity um, through language, which was really exciting to me. And I guess... That kind of informs my philosophy. I do approach things from a very, um, I guess, if you talk about the aphasia world, that life participation approach um, mm -hmm. perspective, because I think that that everybody has valuable things and experiences to contribute. And like I said, I'm super excited about learning. I feel like I learn from my students. I learn from my clients. And and I think that that's my approach to education in terms of starting my new program or this program here, this new program at Moravian College. So when I graduated from my PhD, I actually, before I graduated, a semester before I graduated, I moved to North Carolina and took a faculty position there at Appalachian State University, which was really great. I learned a whole load. I started teaching in a more lecture style, according to what most programs do, according to what the program did there. I had a really rough first semester of teaching. Um, I think because I was getting used to it because I was also finishing my PhD, but I had a lot of support from the faculty there and I was able to, to turn things around. And I want to say it was maybe two or three years in, I decided this lecture of teaching, this lecturing teaching is getting the students the information they need. And then at the end of the class, I had a system set up where, for example, my adult language disorders class, they had a binder of things that they would have and they would be able to, to take with them and apply clinically. But it was a lot to sift through in terms of thinking about the application. And I had taught it all in terms of content, um, the aphasia section, the, the cognitive communication section, and it was all content related. And while I did do some case studies and exams and assignments and things, I felt like the students were having, were sometimes having a hard time. Some students did a great job of creating those connections and applying it right away, but some students had a hard time taking the information they learned in the classroom and applying it to the clinic. And so it was when I was at App State, I thought back to how I learned in my own program. And the program at University College Cork was a problem-based learning program. And so really, this is not any new idea that I came up with or anything like that. I'm pulling it from what has, has been done elsewhere. Um, and so I decided to start implementing this in my adult language disorders class and to give it a shot. And so I started introducing the content in terms of cases. So the case was the primary piece 
of information that students worked on. And then the content was ancillary to the case and the case I had built so that it would tie back into the content. And so this was just a single class that I had set up like this, but the students responded really well to it. There were definitely students who did not respond well and did not like that I was telling them exactly what they needed to know. But at the same time, for the most part, I think many of the students really learned it. I got really good feedback, especially when students started going out on placements and applying some of this information. And so I, I bought into it completely. I decided to, well, my decision to, to leave App State was really more of a family reason rather than a, a professional reason. I have my husband's family are all from Pennsylvania and he had more opportunities for jobs up here. And so I randomly applied to this, this new program at Moravian College thinking, I don't know if, if, if they'd be interested in me to start a new program, but if I were to start a new program, I would make it completely problem-based learning and the whole curriculum would be set up like that. And I pitched that idea on my interview thinking that this will make it or break it. And Moravian College loved it, I think, because they're kind of like me going back to my original reason for choosing this profession. Um, the whole interdisciplinary nature and Moravian College being a very liberal arts school with a very strong focus on interdisciplinary education. I think they liked the idea of, of drawing on all the disciplines and using these critical thinking abilities. Um, and so here I am, started a program, and we have our first cohort about to graduate here next month. Very impressive. Very impressive. Outside of the box thinking. It's outside of the box, but it's coming from what I know, too. So I guess it's because of my diverse education. There are a number of problem. I guess the, the history of problem-based learning is actually that it came from the the medical fields. It was McMaster University was the first program to, to use it. And they decided to implement it because they were noticing that a lot of their medical professionals, their doctors were graduating and didn't have a very good bedside manner. And so they decided that to make things more human to these doctors, they would introduce problem cases to present the content rather than just presenting the content on its own. And they noticed that it seems to help. And it caught on. I think this might have been in the, the 70s, 60s, 70s, maybe. Um, I don't remember off, off the top of my head. But I know that Harvard adopted the approach and a number of other med schools. And it's still pro popular in med schools to date. Um, speech language pathology was a lot slower catching on. And I think, I don't know if this is true, but I think that's because a lot of our clinical education that we do really does approach things from this perspective, from the hands-on learning perspective. And so we were already doing so much of this. We didn't think we needed to overhaul our curriculum or curriculi. Um, but I think it was a program in Hong Kong that started it. At least I know that's the one that um, my program in UCC that I came through was based on. And I know that there's a number of other programs after popping up around the world. Now there's one in Sweden, a couple in Australia, one in England. Um, and the one that I came through in UCC is still operating like that. And then the one in, in Canada, McMaster, is a year ahead of us. It just started a year before us. And, and Lynn Turkster is the director there. And 
I've worked with her. She's been pretty helpful in the development of our program. Good to know the history. I am new to pedagogy. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm like you, I'm a lifelong learner. So I am just gobbling up what you're telling me, writing some notes down. I want to go look at some of these things. It's one of the one of the things that I love about this podcast is it's just a collaborative effort of connecting and sharing mm-hmm. and, and, and just helping one another. So being a, a graduate professor, what are some um, words of wisdom that you have for students who are going to be starting a graduate program? That's a really good question. I think that... Um, I think that what you just mentioned there, that lifelong learning perspective, I think that perspective is really important. I think that students need to be ready and open to learning beyond the graduate program. I had a student last week, actually, who submitted a a first year student who submitted a reflection that said, I really didn't understand what lifelong learning was. You know, it was a a word that is thrown around. I really didn't understand until recently. And all of a sudden it's just clicked that, hey, as a clinician, I'm not going to know everything. I'm going to have to continue to be a learner. I'm going to have to do continuing education. I'm going to have to take that initiative to try to learn about things on my own. And, and yeah, so I guess that's my advice is to approach things with an open mind, be flexible and acknowledge that you're always going to be a learner. I can also give a little bit of, I know my, our program here at Moravian College is a little bit different to many other programs in terms of how we do the admissions process, but I can give um, a little bit of advice about the admissions process from our perspective. We really, um, we really, we have um, like many other programs de-emphasize the GRE, especially this year and going forward, I think we will continue to de-emphasize the GRE as it wasn't required for our applicants this year and we don't anticipate requiring it going forward. We do look at GPA, but we also really, really value those things that students put on their resume and on their personal statement about their experiences. We look at their community involvement, their ability to um, demonstrate leadership skills. We look at diverse kinds of experiences. We, um, we have a certain number of, of diversity points that we award for, for diverse perspectives and experiences because we really value those kinds of things um, as students bring them to the problem-based learning room where everything is really discussion-based and experiences really do hold a lot of value. Um, and, and so my suggestion to students that are applying to programs like ours would be to, to not forget about how the more mundane things that they think are mundane that they have done as part of their everyday life really do prepare them for careers in speech language pathology. We also do an interview portion, um, which is quite fun. We, um, I think I think it's fun for us and for the applicants. <laughs> we we do a group interview, and so everybody gets to work together as a group. Um, they get a group problem that's not related to speech language pathology that they have to work together as a team of about eight or nine people to solve, or not completely solve, but come up with potential solutions for this problem. Kind of like that problem-based learning component, and then we do some some mini multiple interviews where they go into a room for five minutes and have to deal with an ethical issue or 
um, show their communication skills by apologizing for crashing into somebody else's car or something like that. And so it's really a fun, unpredictable interview process. That sounds unique. It gives us a lot of perspective on how students are as communicators and how they are as problem solvers and critical thinkers. And I think that that's that's the kind of student that we're looking for in the program rather than somebody who scores high on tests alone, if that makes sense. It does. It does. It does. Because you're not looking for students who look good on paper. Mm -hmm. Looking for students who are going to take that position that you're offering them in your exactly. and really implement it and, and go make a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. And pe people who already show through as as potentially great clinicians. Mm -hmm. I think that, that you mentioned that on paper piece. I think that that's not always representative of the people who will be the most fantastic clinicians going forward. So taking a step backwards, you mentioned being sure to include some of those mundane skills, mundane things. Can you give us some examples? Um, for example, the person who has worked in a restaurant for many years may think that that is a, a something that everybody does and not see its importance. But being able to showcase in their letter or on their resume that hey, you know, I was in customer service and I dealt with people who had communication difficulties and I was able to solve problems from a customer um, standpoint. So I think that those kind of things, being able to talk about how your experiences can contribute to what you, what you would become as a clinician is important, if that makes sense. Yes, it, you're connecting the skill set learned in an everyday non-related SLP career and taking and targeting those skill sets that you are going to bring forward into your graduate student career. Exactly. You put that way more eloquently than I did. <laughs> <laughs> can you give us an idea of, just for fun, can you give us an example of a group problem? My curiosity is piqued. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess... You mean for the interview or for an actual typical day in the program? I'm both. Okay. Oh. Um, the interview, an example of a good... Let's go with the typical day in the program. It's easier to find an example without giving away too many secrets <laughs> with that regard. Um, for a regular day in the program, you may have... Um, Joanne just had a stroke. Her family are really concerned about... Um, understanding why she's not able to communicate with them. They don't really understand what's going on. Um, they're not sure what to do in order to be able to communicate with her. They think that they need to make all the, the decisions about her medical care right now. And, and so there's generally a number of learning issues that may be associated with this um, problem. And so um, for example, depending on the details given, it, one may be, so what is a stroke and why does a stroke happen? Another, so these are learning questions that would come up. The learning issues would be describe and understand the process of a stroke, describe and understand what, what aphasia is, um, identify how assessment and treatment for aphasia 
or describe assessment and treatment for aphasia and then and then maybe discuss the the education component of of family-centered patient care in individuals with aphasia. And so those are the kind of learning issues that the the facilitator as the instructor would see. Um, The students don't see that. They come up with questions. So they get their problem, their specific case. They come up with their questions. um, And these are the questions which are a negotiation process and guided by the facilitator because we know the learning outcomes. Um, These questions guide what they do in the week. So how it works in our curriculum is a student gets this problem at the very beginning of the week, usually the end of the previous week. And so the whole week will be spent working on this problem. They work on these problems in groups of eight, typically in our program. The group sizes can vary in different programs. And so they do their back, they they get the problem, they do their background research, and they all come together on the Monday. For example, the semester it worked like it was the Monday on the Thursday our meetings were. And they spend three hours together on that Monday discussing the problem highlighting the things they've learned, the literature they've read. Sometimes we'll provide more or less recommended readings. It depends on the level of the student in the program. Um, the, the background information they've found, the educational resources, they often um, do divide and conquer to a certain extent and focus on different areas and share all their information. And I feel like this is, negotiation of the information helps students understand it better and remember the information to a greater extent. And so rather than receiving all this information in a lecture format, they're sifting through it. They've already done the background reading. They've been looking at some of the primary literature and they've figured out what what might be most appropriate for this case, but also some other kind of treatment and assessment approaches that might be more or less appropriate for other cases. So the the process looks like at the end of the week, so they meet on the Monday for this, they go through things, they decide what they're going to work on and and decide what they want to do for the Thursday at the end of the Monday class. And then they meet on the Thursday for another three hours. In the middle on a Wednesday, we typically do a one hour lecture, which is a one to two hour lecture, depending on the semester which is a lecture that provides um, background information. And it's a more lecture style, traditional classroom. We have oftentimes a guest speaker, but sometimes one of us um, present to the class on this topic of interest and the important aspects about this particular case. And then on the Thursday, they come back together, they sift through the information, they make sure they've hit all the learning issues, they make sure they understand it all in relation to the case. They um, also develop a product. The product is generally a tool that they can use in their future clinical careers. So that can be, it's really wide open. Um, For example, last week, my group made a informal assessment as their product. Sometimes they make educational videos. I had a couple of groups this semester made TikToks for other clinicians. Um, And so generally at the end of each problem at the end of each week, they will have a number of things they'll turn in. They'll turn in their notes, which is their their version of questions and answers related to the learning issues. They'll turn in their list of references um, and the, the, I guess, bibliography they've collected on this problem over the course of the week. They'll also turn in their um, 
their product, which is this final tool that they might may use in their future careers. And the product can be directed at either like the client themselves. It can be directed at other SLPs. It can be targeted towards a general public inform information type um, type product. And then the the final thing they turn in um, is an in oh. Two more things, actually. They have an individual component they turn in as well. So they also turn in a reflection on their contributions to the process and how the group process has worked during the week, as well as a reading form where they've chosen one piece of primary literature and they've analyzed it in detail. Um, and we have specific questions that we ask related to that. So they um, look at one particular paper in great depth. They also do some self-evaluations and peer evaluations on a just a, a regular rating form survey style that we have for each week. And I bring these things up to, to highlight the fact that I think, I think this whole process helps students develop their teamwork skills. You talked about that one student that stood out to you. I feel like there's a lot of negotiation um, of conflict resolution within the group. There's a lot of, of collaboration necessary. The team definitely have to figure out how to work together. The students really do um, learn how to negotiate that environment in a professional manner um, and learn how to see how their contributions, the reflection really, really adds to how their contributions impact things within the group. So for example, to give you something more concrete to hold on to, I had a student early one semester who was particularly upset that she felt like her group didn't appreciate her contributions. She didn't know how to manage it. And we had a good talk about how, you know, you're often going to be working on clinical teams where this is going to be the case. Um, you're going to feel like you're not a valued member of the team. You're going to feel like it's just not a very functional team and you can't just bow out. You have to for the sake of your clients and your patients keep working with this team and develop a system of, of negotiating the environment. And so we were able to sit down myself and herself and talk about some strategies she could use to negotiate this environment, to try help the team appreciate her contributions more, to show the team what she was doing in terms of contributing um, to the group, to, to communicate with the team, I guess, in a different way so that they would have a different perspective of what she was bringing to the table. And it was a really, really fantastic, in this case, it worked really well. I know that's not always going to be the case, but in this particular example, by the end of the semester, the group were really appreciative of her, her contributions. She'd really changed her communication style and found a way to work within this group where, um, if this had been working with real patients, she would have, have created a situation where she had a much bigger voice at the table and was really able to better contribute to their care. Sounds like a very comprehensive approach. Mm -hmm. I think that it's helped students develop transferable skills mm -hmm. for that clinic environment. And so I really buy into it. I know I'm very biased, but I really do buy into the, um, the perspective that it helps students not only in their learning and their acquisition of knowledge, because I do think that they remember a lot of the information better. Um, the evidence suggests that they they remember a lot of the information to a better ex extent. And 
even the the students that we talked to, for example, a student last week, we were talking, we were we were working on an aphasia case and they had worked on aphasia um, earlier in their curriculum as well. And, and they were able to say, Oh, I remember when so-and-so shared this really interesting paper that she had, let's go back to that because they remember that conversation and discussion. And I think that those discussions and negotiations help with that, that memory of the information that's presented. Excellent. What words of advice do you have for the student who needs to reach out to a professor for whatever reason? That's a really good question. I think that it definitely depends on the the professor. I think that in general, being formal and being professional is really important. Acknowledging the fact that, that professors do have time constraints on their time and are, are most of us do want to be available to students, but are not available 24 seven to students. And so I think that it really boils down to that politeness, professional asking for help. And I can say that 99.9% of the people I know who are professors in the field are really enthusiastic about supporting students and really want to be there for students. And so would be more than happy to reach out. So I would suggest not being afraid to reach out but do so in a way that gives the professor some flexibility in terms of meeting with you. Don't demand that they meet with you tomorrow, but, but <laughs> ask when they might be available and if they might have 15 minutes to have a discussion with you about, about such and such. I think that um, this transition in the pandemic may, may have made it easier for some of these connections mm-hmm. with, with professors. I feel like when you're, when you're on campus, at least when I'm on campus, I feel like I'm always busy and running around and have a million and one things to do. When when you're on Zoom, I feel like it's easier for students to find a spot in my Zoom calendar to catch me more privately and be able to have some of these more conversations or these more specific conversations. And so I guess there's pros and cons to the fact that we're able to meet in a virtual world these days too. I like that positive, positive outlook. Huh. Last question, when you have students who are getting ready to graduate and uh, they're getting ready to leave your program and, and launch their own careers, what words of advice do you have for them? I think that I'll go back to my earlier point, that lifelong learning component, that lifelong learning phrase is such a cheesy phrase, but really I think that that idea that they don't expect to know everything, mm-hmm. that I still am very clear about the fact that I don't know everything. And I mentioned, I still do learn a whole load from my clients and from my students. I guess that's one of the reasons I really like the PBL approach. Invariably, students will find new information that's really exciting to me. And, and I feel like it's a, it's a major learning process for me too. But I think that that idea of being willing and open to learning and being flexible and being direct with clients about that. I know that some clients really do value that expertise, but I think they're there because they know you are an expert. I feel like they're there so that you can learn about their experience of the the issues they're they're dealing with as well. And so being open to, to learning from them and acknowledging that 
that while you do have background on what works for most people or according to the literature is the most effective approach, you really want to work with them as an individual. Um, and this goes back to, to my philosophy um, and the, the resources I shared in the, the resource page are um, the things that I've written really do talk a lot about how rather than as, a, as an instructor, as a professor and as a a clinician, I really do appreciate a lot of what Mark Ilvesaker has talked about. He's a researcher that um, was from New York City that worked a lot with individuals with traumatic brain injury. Um, he talks a lot about being a coach more so than, than being a, a teacher or an instructor. And I think that we are more coaches to our clients, especially with adult clients. And I know I'm really coming from a perspective where I work mostly with adult clients right now. It's, it can be different with, with pediatrics, but with adult clients, we, we do assume a role as a coach. We are, um, we are there to, to serve them as such and, and help them overcome their challenges and help them find that self-motivation. And I feel the same with students. I am there to help them, um, find that self-motivation, find that passion for learning and, and become advocates for themselves. And so that's my advice as a, as a clinician that's about to graduate is know that you're never going to know anything, but know that you can learn a whole load from your clients and from your colleagues. And, and, and I mean, colleagues both within and outside of our field and yeah, do the best you can because you've got, if you're graduating from an accredited program, you've got, the tools you need it's just a case of of learning how to how to listen to others and apply them in the best possible way sounds like excellent words of wisdom so at fresh slp we are collecting from all of our podcast guests for a word cloud one word that would surmise how you feel about our field or what we do as speech pathologists and audiologists can you give me a word for our word cloud that is tough. It's hard to boil it all down to one word. <laughs> yes. Can I make it two? Yes. Some people. <laughs> Can I say um, problem solvers to tie in with our problem-based learning component? Love it. That is signature you. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on today. It was a treat talking to you and hearing about your program and your passion and your thought process. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm really excited to be able to contribute and I hope I, I provided some useful information to somebody. You did. I hope today's conversation has created some aha moments for you and motivated you to become a better SLP. Continuing to connect some of those missing links between what you know and how to use that knowledge. Thank you for downloading the missing link for SLP's podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, I'd love you to subscribe, rate it, and leave a short review. Also, please share an episode with a friend. Together, we can raise awareness and help more SLPs find and connect those missing links and get the information needed to help them feel confident in their patient care every step of the way. Follow me on Instagram and join the Fresh SLP community on Facebook. Show notes are always available, so come learn more at freshslp.com. Let's make those connections. You've got this.